If you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, turn with me to 1 Corinthians 15. We're going to kind of look at quite a bit here, but we're going to be in 1 Corinthians 15. And I just want to ask you this question. How or what has personally impacted you from our study of the Ascension? How have you been personally impacted? Is there something that you learned that you didn't already know? Has your perspective changed on the ascension? Why don't you bring that? In fact, on your tables is chart of really our entire series and overview of the lessons. And a lot of these different aspects I was aware of and I knew and have even taught on, but I didn't realize how they were all tied together into the ascension. And so we've, we've seen that after the resurrection, Christ rises up, yes, the resurrection. But we don't close our Bibles and go on with life. No, the ascension has happened. And in that, there's glorification, the session of sitting at the right hand, the procession, which is the sending of the Spirit, His intercession is the royal high priest at the right hand. It's His direction as the sacrificial head of the church. His preparation of our home in heaven is taking place. His consecration of His church, because He's going to come to judge the world, but before He needs to judge the church, not to condemn, but to cleanse us. And then the final revelation we talked about two weeks ago, Revelation 19 His final exaltation is unique. It's not up in heaven. His final exaltation is down here on earth. And I kind of thought, I'm sitting there, we were in Colorado Springs looking at the Garden of the Gods there at uh, the Navigator's headquarters where we stayed and contemplating. And I'm like, you know, I think I'm wrong to say he he descended, ascended, and then he descended again. Because he doesn't really descend. What he does is he brings heaven with him to earth. It's like he, he doesn't like come, you know, leave up there. He brings up there down here with him. And that's a great climax. But we're going to see that today the ascension ultimately is a means to an end. And that is the submission of all things to God. That's the end. So here's our ascension question. For our last lesson, and and that's this. What is the ultimate goal of the ascension? What is the ultimate goal? Is it merely sitting at the right hand? Is it the second coming? Or is there something more? What is it? And here's the answer in, in case I mess up the lesson and you miss what I'm saying. Here it goes. Once the exalted Lord has descended again to subdue all his enemies under his feet. Revelation 19, he will submit everything. He will submit everything, including himself, to the Father, so that God is all in all. I would say to you that 1 Corinthians 15, the verses we're going to look at, are some of the most neglected and yet the most important passage in all the Bible. And once I I saw this, I was like, whoa, this just gets overlooked so much. So turning your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 15, hopefully you're already there. And we're going to look at verses 20 through 28 today. 
But I want to give you a little bit of the context, all right? So let's look at the context. 1 Corinthians 15 is one of the most important passages in the Bible for a variety of reasons. And the number one reason, what does 1 Corinthians 15 teach about? The resurrection. It is the classic passage on the resurrection. So let me give you an overview. Let's begin in verse 1 and 2. First of all, he begins this this, uh, chapter by saying, Believing... In the bodily resurrection of Christ, and those who die in Christ, is a gospel essential. Deny the bodily resurrection, and you've denied the gospel, and you're not truly saved. Bottom line. That's what he says in verses 1 and 2. Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which, was, which also you received, in which also you stand, by which also you are saved, If you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. And then he says, I delivered to you what was of first importance. Christ died according to the scriptures. He was buried and raised on the third day according to the scriptures. So verses 1 and 2 say, believing in the bodily resurrection, not just of Christ, but of all believers, is essential. Then he moves into verses 3 through 11, and he says this. He says, holding fast to this gospel is of first importance. He says, I gave to you, I delivered to you what is of first importance. This is a gospel primary. And then he proceeds in these nine next verses to say, It's scriptural, according to the scriptures. It's historical. There were eyewitnesses. It is propositional. It's not some spiritual thing where you look at your navel and contemplate a spiritual rising. No, it's it's a factual proclamation. It's relational. It involves interaction of God's people. It's transformational. It will change your life. It's universal, the same message for all the world. And it's motivational in that it will motivate you to serve the Lord when you want to quit. Because you have resurrection power. You have a resurrection reality. Then he moves into verses 12 through 19 Because the Corinthians were on the verge of denying this gospel essential. And he says in 12 through 19, denying this gospel essential has a doctrinal domino effect. It has a doctrinal domino effect. If Christ is not physically risen, then the message is powerless. Listen, the message of the power of the gospel is in the resurrection power. It can raise the dead, therefore it can change your heart. It can heal your diseases. It raises the dead. Then, if it's powerless, then our faith is pointless. What are we believing in? And then the witness of the apostles, well, they said they were eyewitnesses, but if Christ didn't rise, then they're liars. Then our sins are not forgiven. We're still dead in our sins. Then our dead loved ones are rotting corpses. Here we just have celebrated some dear saints going home to be with the Lord. I'm telling you, I, 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 it is a blessing to visit saints on their deathbed whose testimony is clear and, and to bring to them the scriptures. Because otherwise I've got nothing to say. And they have nothing to look forward to. And yet, they are not rotting corpses. 
they are alive and in the presence of the Lord. And one day, they're going to be reunited with their physical glorified bodies. And we will see them. We will hug them. And we will be reunited. Not wispy spirits floating around, but physically together. And then our lives are not the most miserable on the planet. They are the most desirable. Listen. Our lives are the most miserable if we're living for something that's not going to happen. Okay? My wife and I have put Christ first in our finances, and we give on top of that the faith promise. And I'm telling you what, if Christ hasn't risen, we've been very foolish with our money. But if Christ has risen, you know, I don't know what's going to be, but I'm counting on it. That it's going to be a reward, and there's going to be a, an investment return on putting him first in our finances. So then he comes down and he says in verse 20, affirming, verse 20, affirming the hope of the resurrection means the opposite is true, okay? Affirming the hope, did I mess that up? Maybe I did. Affirming the hope of our bodily means declaring his good news. I don't think you want to look at that uh, because I think I cut and pasted instead of reversing that. Christ is risen. Yeah, I did that very poorly. Sorry. Christ is risen. (laughs) The message is powerful, okay? Our faith is pointless, okay? The witness is true. Okay, so I'm teaching heresy there. Disregard that. Uh, Our sins are forgiven. It's right in my notes. There is hope for those facing death, and our lives are not the most miserable. They're the most desirable. And here's the thing. The moment that Christ comes back, We're going to look back on on all our suffering and all our sacrifices, and we're going to say, whoa, man, that, that was more than worth it. I wish I would have sacrificed more because look at what I'm getting. Whereas those who live for this world are going to, in an instant, be paupers. They're going to be impoverished. They're, they're going to go, oh, my Lord, we, we, we missed you. <laughs> Lord, you weren't our Lord, and we miss you, and we see you only as judge. Now, we can joyfully um, proclaim these things, not those things, but the proper things. We can rejoice in those, and we can proclaim those. But, and this is what Paul proceeds to do in verses 20 through 28. So look at verses 20 through 20. All that's lead up to what he says. So look at what he says in verse 20. But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. Because he rose, he's the first of more to come. So because he rose, he's the first of more to come. Verse 21, for since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. But each in his own order. Christ is the first fruits. After that, those who are Christ at his coming. So there's a progressive order unfolding of the resurrections and the coming glories of the kingdom. Notice, those who are Christ. Then he says, verse 24, and this is what I want you. Then comes the end. The ultimate goal of history. Then comes the end when he hands over the kingdom to the God and Father when he has abolished all rule all authority and power 
For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. There's our ascension idea. There's the ascension. Remember, he sits at the right hand until all his enemies are under his feet. So he must reign. And the last enemy, verse 26, the last enemy that will be abolished is death. And then look at verses 27 through 28. For he has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when he says all things are put in subjection, it is evident that he is accepted who put all things in subjection. The idea is God subjects all things under Christ's feet. But when he does that, he, God the Father, is not under Christ. Everything is under Christ. God the Father does that. But he himself is not under Christ. Then it says, verse 28, When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself also will be subjected to the one who has subjected all things to him. Why? Because the ultimate goal of history is so that God is all in all. Now this is an aspect that we overlook. The ultimate goal of history. There it is laid out for us. Now, what exactly is Paul trying to say? He's saying this. Christ's bodily resurrection, back over 2,000 years ago, sets in motion the fulfillment of God's ultimate goal of history. What triggered the ultimate goal of history being fulfilled? It's Christ's resurrection and his ascension. Now, read again, 24 through 28. Notice what it says, or, or down, it says, Then comes the end when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father, when he has abolished all rule, all authority, all power. The ultimate goal is the submitting of all things to God through the person of Christ. And what's essential to that? He must reign until all authority is under him. And once all authority is under him, then he offers himself and all that's under him, places all that he is and himself under God the Father. So there's the final act, the ultimate goal of history. Let's look at it this morning. I want to ask and answer two questions. What is the ultimate goal? I know I just told you what it is, but I want to look at it. From the passage, what is the ultimate goal of history and how is the ultimate goal of history fulfilled? So let's take a look at this and see if we can make sense of what verse 28 says. When all things are subjected to him, then the son himself also will be subjected to the one who subjected all things. By the way, did you see in verses 27 through 28, the word for submission is used six times. It's like you stumble over it. It's so many times. Submission. The ultimate goal of history, folks, is the S word. What's the S word? Well, don't guess. It's submission. Listen, if you don't like submission, you're not going to like the future. Because it's all about submission. And we as believers, that's what our present lives should be about as well. So let's take a look at it. What is the ultimate goal of history? How would you answer that question? 
How would you answer that question? I've, I've given it away. I've told you what the answer is, but how would you answer that question? What is the ultimate goal of history? How would you explain it to someone? And how does this passage, 1 Corinthians, especially verses 24 through 28, how do they help you answer the question, what is the ultimate goal? Let's look at what it's not, okay? First of all, the ultimate goal of history is not the world's idea. You know, if you would ask the world, and maybe this would be a good thing to ask at the first week of school or your first next time at work in the morning, and say, hey, what's the goal of history? I mean, that'd be a great question. I always like Rick Powers. When I throw something out here like this, he goes and does it. And then he reports back to me some great answers. It's, it's just asked, what do you think is the ultimate goal of history? World peace? Nirvana? Universalism where everybody is saved? The reversal of global warming. Some of these things might be good things. Some of them not, aren't, aren't true and, and right. But is that the goal? Or is it, oh, no, Chris, I know the answer. It's me going to heaven. The ultimate goal of history is me going to heaven. And sadly, some of us have reduced Christianity to that. Well, Chris, I would never be that selfish. It's not me going to heaven. It's me and my loved ones going to heaven. See, I've, I've expanded my circle. Oh, me and my loved ones. Well, no, okay, I know that's a little selfish. How about all believers going to heaven? That's the ultimate goal. Maybe you're like, oh, I know a little theology. It's the millennial kingdom. Ultimately, everything's headed to the millennial kingdom. Or maybe you're like, well, I don't, I don't believe my eschatology is such. I think it's just the salvation of the saved and the judgment of the lost. All of that is not the ultimate goal of history. The ultimate goal of history is, has a threefold answer. Let me work you through it. First of all, God's kingdom finally comes to the old creation. God's kingdom finally comes. The reason I think a millennial kingdom, a thousand-year reign of Christ on this earth, this very fallen earth, is important because it starts to fulfill God's final goal of history. And it fulfills it this side of the new creation. Christ is going to reign in this fallen world and he's going to establish his reign. That's why we pray our father who art in heaven, your kingdom come, your will be done where on earth as it is in heaven. And this is why verse 25 says he must reign. He must reign from heaven as he is now, but he must also reign on earth as we see in Revelation 19 and 20. You see, the return of the king we saw two weeks ago, Revelation 19. The reign of the king for a thousand years, Revelation 20. But here in 1 Corinthians 15, we see the result of his reign. Look again at verse 25. He must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. And the last enemy that will be abolished is death. And guess what? Go to Revelation 20 and at the end of the millennium, what's the final enemy that is thwarted? Death is thrown in with the Antichrist and with the false prophet and with the devil is thrown in to the lake of fire. Death is the last enemy to be abolished. And then verse 27, for he has put all things in subjection. But when he says all things, and this is what's interesting, 
No less than five times does Paul say in these verses, all things are in subjection. All things are under him. So that's the first ultimate goal. The kingdom finally comes in the old creation, but it doesn't stop there. Number two, God's promises completely fulfilled in the new creation. God's promises completely fulfilled. Because his kingdom comes in the old creation, we can be ushered into the new creation where every promise is fulfilled, where every tear is wiped away, where there's no more darkness, no more sin, no more death, no more cancer. It's all there in the new creation, every promise. And by now, I hope, you know, God help me, I hope at my funeral, you will say, well, he always taught me what God's kingdom was. God's presence, dwelling with God's people, in God's place, through God's person, the ascended, exalted Son, by God's power, the Holy Spirit, according to God's promises, the Word of God, for God's purpose, the glory of God, and the good of his people. That is all going to be accomplished in the new creation. Notice in your notes, I have a couple verses to to encourage you with this morning. But according to his promise, we are looking for what? A new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. And then Revelation 21.3 sums up the promise and the story of the Bible. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold! The tabernacle, the presence of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. That's just a summary of God's presence with God's people in God's place. That's, that's where we're headed, and those promises will be fulfilled. And you know what happened? It was promised in Genesis 1, in Genesis 1, 26 through 28. God promised that he would create male and female image bearers and they would be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth with his image. And the way they would image him, Genesis 2, is through male headship, female submission, modeled in marriage in a way under God. It would be reflected in Genesis 3. The devil reversed that order and had came as a creature and came to deceive the woman and the man fully eyes wide open disobeyed and all of creation fell with him and yet God is God and God came and said Adam he didn't come and say Eve what did you do he said he come and said Adam what have you done and then Adam took full responsibility confessed his sin wrong Okay, don't look at the chart. No, he didn't do that. He blame shifted. It's the woman you gave me. And the woman said, oh, I'm the godly one. I'll confess I did it. No, it's that serpent you created. He did it. And then God proceeded then to curse in in that inverted order. It's an amazing story of the order and the submission of all things. But God cannot be thwarted. His promises will be fulfilled. His presence will reign. And it's interesting, and I can't go into this deeply, but I want you to see in verses 20 through 22, 
Guess who's discussed in chapter 15? Adam, the first Adam and the final Adam. Guess who's discussed at the end of this chapter? Look at verses 44 or 45 through 50. Once again, old Adam, new Adam. First Adam, last Adam. He's pulling together the whole story of the Bible, okay? But there's still an ultimate goal, and that's number three. Notice, number three in your notes, the ultimate goal of, is, of history is God's authority is all in all for his glory and the good of his people. Yes, the kingdom finally comes in the old creation. Yes, God's promises are completely fulfilled in the new, but the ultimate goal is God's authority is all in all. So how does, gen- how does history and the Bible begin? What verse? What? What's the first verse in the Bible? Genesis 1.1. What's it say? In the beginning, God. Always put a pause there. In the beginning, God. Because before he created, what was there? God. God. In the end. In the end. Look at verse 28. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to the one who subjected all things to him. Why? So that God may be an all in all. How did it begin? In the beginning, God. How's it going to end? God is all in all. Wow. The ultimate goal of history is the doxology. The doxology. God is all in all for His glory and our good. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above, all ye heavenly hosts. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. There's the ultimate goal of history. And it's all going to be submitted to Him. It's all going to be submitted. And you say, so what, Chris? So what? Well, look at the next point. Paul keeps applying the ultimate goal of all of history to the Corinthians' walk and worship. He keeps applying it. If this is 1 Corinthians 15, there's only one more chapter and then the letter's over. But if you read all of 1 Corinthians, he keeps applying the ultimate goal of history to their daily lives. Now, I can't go deeply into this, but I want you to see that in chapter 2, In verses 8 through 9, he says this, The world did not understand who Christ is. Otherwise, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. They didn't understand that this broken, seemingly, well, very human, seemingly weak and powerless, Jesus of Nazareth was the Lord of glory. See, they didn't have God's eyes on the ultimate goal of history. And they mistook who he was. And he doesn't want the Corinthians to think, hey, Christianity is all about bucking up and being powerful and succeeding and prosperity. No, look at the brokenness of Christ and realize he's the Lord of glory, even though he's broken and crucified. Then in chapters 5 through 7, He's teaching them on the proper use of their bodies in singleness and marriage. That, that pretty much covers everyone in this room. 
And then he says, in the middle of rebuking them for practicing sexual immorality and affirming it in their church, he says in verse 20 of chapter 6, For you have been bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body. You want to know how the ultimate goal of glorifying God relates to you? Glorify God in your body. Glorify God in your sickness, in your weakness, in your disease, in your battle with cancer. Glorify Him in that. Glorify Him in your sexuality. And affirm male and female as it was in the beginning. See, all of that in Genesis is relevant to today. Then in chapters 8 through 10, he he starts discussing about the Corinthians were abstaining from food thinking that not eating certain foods made them spiritual. Then others were overindulging, saying, what I eat doesn't matter to God. And they were overindulging, okay? And here's what he says in the middle of that, 1031. Whether then you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. So the ultimate goal of history has to do with your eating. How little you eat, how much you eat, and why you eat it. See, all of these things our culture struggles with, eating disorders, sexual immorality, the weakness and the injustices of this world. And the ultimate goal of history has something to say about all of those things. Isn't that beautiful? We can glorify them with our bodies. We don't have to shame our bodies or be ashamed. We can glorify God with what we put in our mouths and what we drink and do it for the glory of God, but make sure you're doing it for his glory. Then he comes to chapter 11, and he talks to him about corporate worship. And we come to this wonderful passage. It's become Jerry's favorite passage as we spent over a year on this passage. Okay, it's not. It's not his favorite passage. And I'm still not sure what it means, but we... But it's important, right, Jerry? It is important. Maybe, I don't know. He's not sure. Look at verse 7, 7 through 9. For a man ought not to have his head covered, since he is the image and glory of God, but the woman is the glory of man. For man does not originate from woman, but woman from man. For indeed, man was not created for the woman's sake, but woman for the man's sake. Therefore, the woman ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of angels. Okay, we're not getting into that today. And and I can, because we did spend time. I can now get into that. I can tell you what I believe about that. But what I want you to understand is I just taught you the most important thing about that chapter. And it's not the head covering per se. It's the glory of man and woman in worship to God. That's the most important thing. We'll debate the other stuff. But that is the essence. So the glory of God, the ultimate goal of history, it applies to your suffering. It applies to your sexuality. It uh, it applies to the satisfaction of your body with food and drink. And it applies to your worship. In our worship, we should reflect the headship and the submission that is a part of God's ultimate goal for history. And then finally, right here in chapter 15, he rounds out this chapter. And we won't read the verses, but I just want you to see in these last verses, he talks about the glory of our resurrection bodies, the glory of the world to come, the glory, the glory, 
the glory. And what you think about that future glory, it should impact your present living. You know, my heart goes out to Kara and what she's going through as a single mom. And I don't know what the future holds, but it holds glory. And the fixing of our hope on that glory means we can face cancer. We can face death. We can face finals. We can face confusion about our identity. We can face anything this world brings our way. Amen? Is it going to be easy? No. No, he went to a cross. It's not going to be any easier for us. Is it going to be worth it? Yes. Yes. Yes, because glory awaits. Is that good? I hope that's encouraging to you. So he keeps applying the ultimate goal of history. Oh, I've, I forgot to give you the point. I'm sorry, I'm all messed up. Here's the point I've been making, okay? I'm, so, I'm sorry, I'm still in Colorado. And my daughter's somewhere over Europe. Point to God's glory in all that you do. That was why I went through all that. What does this mean for us? Point to God's glory in all that you do. In the valleys, point to his glory. In the mountaintops, point to his glory. And he takes them through this letter and he keeps hitting. Point, point everything to his glory. The second thing that he keeps telling them is practice. Practice Christ's headship and submission in the church. So a constant theme is the glory of God. But another constant theme is the submission, the headship and submission of Christ. So turn your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 11. uh, And we're going to look at verses 2 and 3 of that chapter. Key chapter about worship. But if you look at 1 Corinthians 11, notice what he says. He starts off. See, everybody gets all freaked out. 